Are you a Christian who wants to go deeper into the roots of your faith? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Grafted, Jewish Roots of Christianity. This is a podcast for Christians who want to understand the Jewishness of Jesus and his word. I'm your host, Stephanie Pavlantos. I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. I'm also an author and a Bible teacher. In this podcast, we will stretch and maybe even challenge you to look at Scripture from a Hebraic point of view. We want to help you understand Scripture through the lens of the Hebrew language, culture, and history. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here today. I have Diane Fiera, and Diane is a wife and mom. She's a Jewish believer in Jesus, or as we call him, Yeshua. She is a blogger and teacher at the Basora Learning Center at Worth Beyond Rubies. She has been teaching a Hebrew class. She's been doing a lot of blogging and everything else. She, she is a Messianic, and I'm going to have her explain that a little bit once I um, turn it over to her. But she's going to explain a lot to us about the Jewish roots of Christianity, as well as questions and misinterpretations that we may have incorporated and actually just learned in our Christian faith. So thank you for being here. I appreciate all that you have, all that you're doing and all that you have to um, teach and explain. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So like I said, you are a Messianic Jew and you Mm -hmm. also have explained that there's also Messianic Gentiles. So I would ask that you maybe first just explain what's a Messianic Jew and what's a Messianic Gentile so we can kind of get terminology correct. Sure. Well, a Messianic Jew, it's a Jewish believer in Jesus or or Yeshua. And what makes that distinctive from a lot of um, Jewish believers in Jesus, because there are a lot of them out there that don't identify as Messianic Jewish, is a Messianic Jew continues to live their life in Jewish space. So we continue to live as we did prior to Yeshua. For, and for many of us, we grew up knowing Yeshua that we know we don't know a life um, prior to Yeshua, but we continue to live our life in our Jewish identity. So we go to synagogue, we, we celebrate the festivals. Um, where other Jewish believers in Jesus may go to church, they may they may have married Christian um, non-Jewish believers, and they attend church, and they don't really have that um, Jewish aspect of their lives. They live their lives essentially as um, Christians. So that's the, really the big distinction: is living that Jewish identity um, and continuing to live as a Jewish person. Where a Messianic Gentile. Um, versus a Christian would be someone who has a distinct calling to live a life that identifies kind of more with the Messianic Jewish lifestyle, for lack of a better word. Um, Lifestyle is not the greatest word, but And they do this under the covering of a Messianic rabbi. So they don't do this off on their own. They don't do this, you know, kind of just picking and choosing areas of um, Torah that they're going to follow. They do this under the covering of, of a synagogue and under a rabbi where they kind of worship alongside Messianic Jews. And, and they live a life that is that where they are under the head 
of of a rabbi, basically. Very good. That makes a lot of sense because I've met Messianic Gentiles. And like you said, they are Gentiles who choose to do the feasts, live according to the the Torah. And and I don't say that, that we don't, or we shouldn't. I'm not saying that at all, but the rest of us, I mean, but that also they see Shabbat as being on Saturday. And, and really there's, there's no problem to do it either way. I guess there's many, many Christians, Gentiles around the world who celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday and keep the Sabbath. And of course, Mm -hmm. I think one thing that we need to make clear is that the Sabbath is a day of rest. Shabbat is a day of rest. It's not about just going to a church service. It's about actually resting. And I think we lose that part sometimes as Christians. We think that it's, we don't really need to rest, Mm -hmm. but God calls us to rest. And so that's probably a whole nother episode, but it is important to rest. Mm -hmm. And I, and I know that for my own husband, he, you know, the Lord convicted him into resting because he's a very hard worker. But anyway, uh, Jewish people, if you are, if you are a descendant of a Jewish, of Jewish heritage, that you can still go to a Baptist church, a Pentecostal church, you know, whatever you want, and still live a life according to the Messiah. You know, you are a Messiah mm-hmm. believer and you worship sure. him alone. And that's okay. It's, it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. And I met a Jewish believer who was actually, he came to, and I say that because he's not messianic, mm-hmm. but he came to know um, Jesus as his Messiah when he was 15 years old. And from that time on, he went to a Christian church. Um, I think it was Christian Missionary Alliance. And he is now a pastor in that denomination. And it's very interesting because he also has a ministry to the Jewish people. So he's very much active in bringing those Jewish people to the Messiah. So anyway, going on, you bring up a lot of good topics within on your website. So I had checked out your website and I'd been there before, but I did a little more searching because I I was interested in how you explain some of the Jewish roots. So one of the questions I had for you too is, did Jesus start Christianity? Because that is something that most Christians believe when they read the Bible and sit in church. That's what we've been told. So can you unpack that for me? Absolutely. So there is a common belief in the church. And and I want to preface this by saying that I don't ever fault Christians for having this belief because I don't think that this is something that is taught necessarily in a lot of seminaries. I don't think it's necessarily something that gets translated into church on Sunday. Many um, churches only have a limited amount of time with people on Sundays, and it's not something that people are really taught. But there's a belief in Christianity that Christianity had its birth in the manger and that the advent of Christianity was with the birth of Yeshua. And that is not the case. Yeshua was a Jew. His followers were Jews. The apostles were Jews. Paul was a Jew. He said, I am a Pharisee. He didn't say I was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees are a whole other can of worms that I could open up. That's another, that's another whole subject for another time is the misunderstanding 
um, about the, the Pharisees. But Christianity was not born with Yeshua. He didn't come to start a new religion. He was very much a Jew. He was very much an observant Jew. He wore tzitzit or fringes, the story about the woman with the issue of blood. And she reached out and touched the fringes of his garment. Those were tzitzit. He, he was an observant Jew. So Christianity did not start with Yeshua. Christianity started somewhere. It, it started to see its, its beginnings roughly around the second, third century. It really became, it really came into its, right. its fruition in the fourth century with Constantine and, and the Council of Nicaea. But no, it did not begin with Yeshua. He did not come to start a new religion. Um, he came to bring the nations into covenant with the God of Israel and, and not start something new. I think it's important that we know that because when we understand that, then we appreciate the Jewishness of Jesus. We appreciate that he followed the Torah. As you say, he was Torah observant. He he kept the law. He didn't Absolutely. walk you know, too far on the Sabbath on Shabbat, I should say, you know, he stayed within the area and, and scripture actually says that, that he wouldn't go. He normally went to Bethany when he was in Jerusalem, but if it was Shabbat, he went to the garden of Gethsemane Mm -hmm. and that's where he might stay. So there was a difference because the garden of Gethsemane was with, was a Sabbath walk or Shabbat walk, I guess, as they might put it. So there are those differences, but if you don't know what you're reading and you mm-hmm. don't understand the Jewishness of what you're reading, then you don't, you don't quite get that meaning out of it. Um, the second thing I thought would be good that goes along with this, because often around Pentecost, I hear believers start talking about how it was the beginning of the church. And I think that walks hand in hand with what you just said, but right. that's not necessarily the truth either. It's not necessarily the whole truth. So Pentecost, just to kind of give a brief overview of what Pentecost is, Pentecost is actually the festival of Shavuot, which is a Jewish festival, which is um, essentially 50 days after the beginning of Passover, which is where it gets its name. Pentecost means 50. So it it follows on from Shavuot. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't the beginning of Christianity. It wasn't the birth of the church, so to speak, but it was the birth of something. So what it was and what it often gets Mm -hmm. mistranslated from was it was at that moment with the coming of the Holy Spirit when the the Jewish followers of Yeshua saw that the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles. It was that awakening, essentially, that when the Jewish um, ecclesia, as Dr. Mark Kinzer refers to it in the Greek, which is basically the body of believers, the the way is is how they were known this body of yeshua followers the jewish mm-hmm. followers saw that the holy spirit could be given to the gentiles and it was this realization that god gave his spirit to these gentiles he is doing something new he's doing something that is incorporating these gentiles into what we're doing and so in a sense it was a birthing but it wasn't the birth of the church, so to speak. It was the realization that 
God was bringing the Gentiles into this covenant relationship into Israel with the Jewish followers of Yeshua. Um, so was it the birth of the church? No, the church was birthed in essence, the, the moment they came to faith in Yeshua, they joined this ecclesia, but it was the realization for the Jewish followers of Yeshua that, that kind of, you know, because on the Jewish side, I will admit that there was this hesitancy and we see this with, with Peter and we see this with some of the apostles that they struggled with this newfound, you know, acceptance of Gentiles because the Gentiles had always been pagan followers. They don't, they had always followed other gods and here, here was God now introducing them and, and, and bringing them into the faith. And there was a little bit of reluctance of what is this? This is something new. And here was the, the, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit now being brought on these Gentiles. And it was a tough pill to swallow for some of the Jewish followers. So in that regard, it was sort of a birthing, um, but it wasn't the beginning of the church. It wasn't, it wasn't the beginning of Christianity or anything like that. That's a great way to put it. I appreciate that because you're right. There's a, there's truth in that, but it's it's not the whole truth. And that's a great way to put it. Right. Because it, it's bigger than that. I mean, we were to yeah. worship alongside Jew and Gentile. And and I hear this a lot. And and I don't think we hear it as much in I don't know. I mean, not in my case. I don't hear it as much within the church, but it's one man. Jew and Gentile were to be one man. We were right. to be followers of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus and worship alongside each other. And that's why there was a court of Gentiles in the temple, you know, and all of in that area. And so you can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, when Jesus cleared that court, if I remember correctly, before his crucifixion, one of the things he did was clear out the money changers. And am I correct in, in, I'd heard that they were in the court of Gentiles is where they had set up shop. Or was it more of a marketplace? Um, it was, I honestly, I don't know the exact court where they were set up. It was, it was more in the outer areas. I don't know that it was necessarily the court of the Gentiles. It, it could have been because I don't know the nature of the actual vendors that they had selling to the Jews. Mm-hmm. I don't know that Jews would have bought items for sacrifice from Gentiles. So I, I almost want to say, no, it may not have been. That's that's something that I, I'll have to look into no. that. That one I'm not 100% sure of. Well, the way I understand it was that when they were set up in the court of Gentiles, they, they were basically preventing Gentiles from coming in because they were set up. And I think it was actually the Jewish people. This is just the way I learned. And again, and there may be some fallacies Mm -hmm. in what I've learned, but when those money changers and the sales people of the um, sacrifices that they were Jewish people, but they were set up in an area that was open for Gentiles to come in. And the way it was explained was just that they were, the Gentiles were kept from coming in there because of this going on. And plus Jesus saying that they, you know, made his house, they were making a den of thieves and and whatnot. So, so all of that, but 
but I heard maybe that's just one way of looking at it and it's not the, you know, the only way of, of maybe it's just one person's point of view that I had learned, but that was kind of how it was explained to me at one time. Yeah, the temple courts, those those areas of the courts, from what I understand, I don't think that they were preventing the Gentiles from coming in because the, the courts, those areas were the temple as a whole, that whole area with all the court of the women and all those areas were quite large. So I don't think that there was any kind of preventative, any kind mm-hmm. of nefarious things going on as far as preventing people from coming in. I think it was more the nature of what uh, was being sold and how it was being done. That was more what had upset him than, than anything else. Okay. That sounds right. I think that there's a lot of different teaching and we do have to be, you know, open to hearing different opinions and different. And I'm not saying that because I think that you're wrong at all. I just think that makes just as much sense to me. So I think that that's a very good point. Even as I think and ponder about different guests and the things they say, I mean, I've probably have maybe done 10 or 12 interviews, you know, conversations already and the different opinions you get because I had one guest on who totally believes that Gentiles should be following Shabbat. Gentiles should be following as Christians. We should be following Shabbat on Saturday. We should be following the food laws, the dietary laws. And, you know, and that's not necessarily what every messianic Jew or Yeshua follower that I interview thinks as well. So I think there are different opinions Mm -hmm. and we have to sort it out and we have to pray and we have to be in tune with what Jesus wants us to do and how he wants us to live out the calling he has called us to. Yeah. And I think that there are definitely very, um, there are areas that are spelled out in scripture that clearly delineate Again, going back to the the Jerusalem Council, where they they clearly spelled out what was expected of Gentile followers. You know, Torah is a touch is a touchy subject because some some Christians believe strongly that they should follow Torah, and then there are many you know on on the Jewish side where Torah was given specifically to the Jews and as a, as a covenant to put Torah onto Gentiles, you know, that's the whole, you're getting into the whole Jerusalem council thing. And, and you shouldn't put burdens on the Gentiles that aren't theirs to bear. And, and that's where a lot of misconceptions come in about the law. And, and, you know, one of the things in Judaism, and I think it's a really big misconception about Torah, is its meaning. And many times when you say the word Torah, uh, and I say Christians because I grew up as a Christian. I, I, My mother did not raise me in a Jewish home. My grandmother was Jewish. It's a long story, but my mother didn't want any part of it because there was a lot of anti-Semitism going on at the time in New York where we lived. So I, I spent time in the church and I spent time in the synagogue. And so when I say Christians, it, I come from that space as well. So I've had my time in that space. And when you say Torah, Christian, a lot of Christians immediately go to the space of law. They immediately think law. Torah simply means teaching. 
It, it doesn't mean law. Yes, there is law in Torah, but Torah actually envelops the entire corpus of um, scripture. It, it is not just the five books of Moses, but when, when a Jewish person speaks of Torah, they typically refer to the entire Tanakh, the entire Old Testament. For Messianic Jews, Torah actually embodies all of scripture. So the, the Tanakh and the apostolic writings, the New Testament. So, because that's our teaching is the entirety of the, of the scriptures. So when a Messianic Jew says Torah, they oftentimes mean the entirety of the Bible. So it, it really depends on what someone is meaning when they say following Torah, that can kind of get muddied as well. So definitions kind of get muddied, um, history kind of gets muddied, and yeah, it can lead to a lot of misconceptions. That's a great point. Thank you for clearing that up, because I think that's really important to know what we're talking about, because there are some who use Torah as the first five books of the Bible, Mm -hmm. and that is where all the laws are given. Leviticus tells us how to eat it tells us how to worship the feast to follow and and that's throughout but but i think there are some who get stuck there on those first five books and then others who talk about it as the tanakh or the old testament and then like you said i mean i i Mm -hmm. hadn't actually heard it associated with the entire bible new and old testaments Mm -hmm. as we might say which is also another um, subject I wanted to talk to you because we often call it new Mm -hmm. and old Testament, but that is not necessarily the whole truth either. Right. So it's often referred to as old and new Testament, which kind of, you know, there, there's a danger in Christianity of replacement theology and supersessionism, which is, you know, replacement theology is, you know, the church has now replaced Israel, you know, in, in God's economy. It's now, you know, Israel had its time, but now the church has replaced it or supersessionism, which is very closely related, which is, you know, this church has superseded Israel. And because Israel rejected the Messiah, the church has now superseded Israel. And none of that is true. The problem is with with terminology like Old Testament and New Testament is it only serves to add continuity to that. It's the Old Testament. That was the way things were. Now there's a New Testament or a new covenant that replaces the Old Covenant. And I like to use the, the picture of the word new, not as in new as in replaces something, but like the new moon, when we have a new moon, it's not a new moon. We don't get a whole brand new moon every month. It just refreshes. It, it's, it's revitalized. It's, it's a new cycle. The new covenant is not one that replaces the old. It's one that now ushers the Gentiles in to covenant in relationship with God through Yeshua. It now it introduces the Gentiles into covenant with God. It doesn't replace the existing covenant. God doesn't break covenant ever. There's nowhere in scripture where God breaks covenant. So God's covenant with Israel is a standing covenant. It is not broken. And now this new covenant is not new in that 
It replaces the old one. It enjoins it, kind of like the grafting in of the Gentiles with the Jews in this spiritual olive tree that we see pictured in the, in the New Testament. We now see them enjoined together. So Yeshua has now brought the Gentiles into covenant with God through himself, the one man Israel. He is the one man Israel. He is the living Torah. He has now brought them in. So what, so the problem with the terminology Old and New Testament is that it just serves to, con, to add continuity to replacement theology. Stuart, Rabbi Stuart Dowerman, who um, is one of my teachers, I love him. He's, he's fabulous. If you ever get to read any of his books, they're amazing. He uses the term Older Testament and Newer Testament, which I like because it adds chronology to it rather than that abrogating one in favor of the other. So you have an Older Testament, which is the the older of the two, and the newer, which is the newer of the two. The the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, again, it, it implies that one is past its prime and the other one has replaced it. So mm-hmm. is it semantics? Yes, it, in a sense it is. Is there a good way of saying it? Probably not. Amy Jill Levine, who is, a, who is a professor of New Testament studies, she is a traditional Jew in the sense that she is not a Yeshua follower. She is a, she is a Jew, um, but she, she is a New Testament scholar and she teaches New Testament studies. She does not have a problem with the term New Testament. I love her. I, I, I read all her books. She's fabulous. She doesn't have a problem with the term New Testament because for Christians, it is new for them. So it really, for me, it depends on how your heart is approaching looking at it. And for me, it's about educating people about the meaning and what what's implied there. It's understanding. I don't think the church has reached a place yet of coming out of replacement theology, which is a form of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. When you say that the church has superseded Israel, that's a form of anti-Semitism and it's dangerous. And I don't think the church has come out of that yet. And until it does, you're always going to have problematic language with Old Testament and New Testament. I like older and newer. I'm going to start using that on my blog because I like it so much. But unless you use, my my other go-to is Tanakh. And apostolic writings. I think that's another safe way of, of putting it. The Tanakh is what the Old Testament is called. Apostolic writings is what the New Testament is. So that has been my other go-to. But yeah, un- unfortunately, it has its history. And that history um, is still quite prevalent. Mm-hmm. It is. And you make a good point, though, because it is about what's in the heart. If you look at the Old Testament as we say, as a way to replace the Jews with the church, then that's that's a bad way of looking at it. That's not a biblical, and that's certainly not God's way mm-hmm. of looking at it. So we have to be careful about what we, and, and not, not to sound like right. I'm giving a warning, but just be careful where our heart is and what we believe and why we believe what we believe. Is it because we think that as the church, we replace the Jews? Or is it just because it's, the all you know just the way you've always heard it put and that's how you you still continue i mean it was a traditional way of saying it in every church i've ever been to but 
the way I actually have heard it as well is it's the covenant and the renewed covenant, right. just like you talked about the renewed moon, the new moon, because the covenant can't be, I think you said it though, the covenant can't be destroyed. Like a will and testament can be challenged and can even be changed in, in the person in light of somebody's death, somebody right. else might challenge that will and testament that they left, but a covenant cannot be challenged. It can only be renewed, correct? Um, you can you can add an additional covenant, yeah, which is okay. what has been done. Is there is now and there is mm-hmm. a there is a new covenant with a new group of people. The covenant with the existing right. group hasn't changed. The new covenant with the new group has now been added. So there is, in essence, a new covenant, um, but it's with a new group mm-hmm. of people. But it doesn't erase the existing covenant it just it's an addendum so to speak mm-hmm. that's it, excellent that's yeah. an excellent way to put it yeah and you know the problem is the reality is that what we see today the way people approach the reading of the new testament today is people come into it with their pre-existing suppositions they read their context into the new testament so they they read it with this with their presuppositions and their biases. And so when you approach, when you approach your reading of the new Testament, it's easy as, as Dr. Jen Rosner says, who wrote the book, finding Messiah to read. So we have the parting of the ways. We have that period of time where you had the Jew and the Gentile together. They were, they were together as one group. And eventually that started to separate. You started to see this division where you no longer had Jew and Gentile together. You now had basically these two groups who were now in their separate corners. And you started to see that. Like if you were to ask people, what's the difference between a Jew and a Gentile? They would tell you, or or Jew and a Christian, they would tell you, well, a Jew doesn't believe in Jesus and a Christian does. Well, that's not true in every case. That's certainly not true in my case. I'm still a Jew and I believe I believe in Jesus. So that's not necessarily true, but that's come to define a Jew and a Christian. But that wasn't always the case that Jew and the Christian, so to speak, um, even though they weren't termed that at the time, were together. And due to a lot of political issues and due to a lot of things that went into the the story, they they slowly or maybe not so slowly looking back in history came apart. A lot of um, there were a series of Jewish revolts that made the Gentiles want to not associate themselves with Judaism anymore because that posed a threat to them due to the Romans. They didn't want to come up. They weren't under the protection of a lot of the established religions back in the, during the Roman empire. So they wanted to kind of not associate with the Jew, with Judaism who were going through these series of revolts against the Roman empire. So they slowly started to drift away And then they began to see themselves and start to define themselves as separate and apart from one another. And that only grew with some of the writings of the church fathers in the second and third century. And then ultimately with the Council of Nicaea, this was the defining moment with Constantine in the fourth century. And in 325 was the Council of Nicaea, 
where now you started to see this solid definition of Christianity. You started to now see the separation of Easter and Passover, which had always been enjoined to each other on the calendar, are now separate. And now you only see a connection between the two coincidentally on the calendar. There is no connection between them. Um, You started to see the establishment of Sunday worship Mm -hmm. through Constantine. That was established at the Council of Nicaea. You started to see the conversion of Jews into Christianity where Jews were forced to eat pork as a sign of that conversion. And there were horrible things in the Council of Nicaea. Um, Many Christians are familiar with the Council of Nicaea because of the Nicene Mm -hmm. Creed. But there are horrible things that came out that are worded in the Council of Nicaea against the Jews. And so there's this stark division. And the Jews started to be seen as those who killed Christ. The Jews started to be seen as these horrible people. And a lot of the reading of the New Testament started to have that incorporated. And you started to see the books of the Old Testament and New Testament reordered so that it fit a certain reading that took the Jews out of it. You started to see Malachi and Matthew positioned next to each other so that they were, so that this continuity was put together. You started to see the Pauline letters put in a certain spot as opposed to James being the first letter so that the Jew, so that the Jewishness was taken out of it. So there were all these things that started happening. And when we approached the reading of the new Testament with a Christian mindset and, and not reading it with an open mind, as far as looking at it, as these were first century Jews that I'm reading about, it really, it really changes what you get out of the text. And I think that if we read the New Testament with that open mind and not come into it, and we can begin to see the New Testament in a new way, in such an amazing new way, when we when we can open ourselves up to reading it with that mindset that Jesus was a Jew. These were Jews that I'm reading about. Um, these were not Christians. Jesus was informing a new religion and it changes. It changes not just the reading, but it changes you. I agree. And I mean, it's just such good information because I don't think many of us know our own church history and how the books of the Bible. I mean, that I have to say right. is, is new news to me. I did not realize that the order in which they are in our Bible mm-hmm. was changed in order to take out the Judaism of it, you know, yes. and, and I've heard, you know, even like the synagogue was always used or congregation was always used. Then they started putting church in there to take out synagogue. And yes, actually it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because synagogue was changed to church, except where it says synagogue of Saint mm-hmm. Satan. Then the word synagogue was left. So it's little things like that. You're absolutely right. And so we have to be open. And I think this is just such a good example of going back and learning your church history. How did this all happen? And trying to look at Mm -hmm. it. How did this affect the Jews? Something I learned recently was when we think of the year 1942, we think of, you know, the whole song, Columbus Sail, the ocean blue and all that. And I mean, my kids start singing that as soon as I say 1940 or 18, 
Yeah. I even had the year 1642. I I think I said 1942. 1642. Yeah. 1642. (laughs) Let's get the year right. But, but one of the things I read was that that year too, all the Jews were basically forbidden to live in Spain. They were chased out. They were exiled. And we yes. don't hear about that in our history. Yeah. And they were, they came under persecution. They, so many yeah. things happened, but the only thing that we know of is what affects, you know, the United States of America, you know, kind of thing. But when you look at history with a broad lens and through a biblical lens as well, then you see, this isn't just affect us. This is affecting our brothers and sisters, um, the Jewish people where we are worshiping the the Messiah that was given to them, we are now worshiping and been invited to partake of that and to join them in the worship of their Messiah. And then you see, you start seeing us as one family, as one family who believes in the one true God. And I mean, it just starts all coming together, I think, for us when when we choose to look at it through that lens, you know, through a biblical lens, including the Jew first and then the Gentile and understanding that whole, that whole kind of mess in a sense, it's become a mess in some ways. Mm -hmm. It wasn't then, but it's become messy waters for us, as you put it. And, And that's, and I think that that's, it's changing. It's certainly changing because there are people like you and many others who are wanting to learn more and, and, wanting to dig in more like once they learn one thing it begins this whole rabbit hole of like I never knew that I need to learn Mm -hmm. more like you don't know what you don't know and then once you begin to learn and and people I've noticed people really become hungry for it and then there's also the there's this thing called the the new perspective on Paul where Paul was Mm -hmm. always thought to have been one who was doing away with Torah, one who was doing away with Judaism. And now there's this new perspective on Paul where it's like, no, Paul was Torah observant. Paul was a Pharisee, Paul. So, and then there's this whole new view. I have a whole blog post on the Pharisees um, and this whole misconception about who the Pharisees were and what, and this relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. There's always this there's this teaching in Christianity of Jesus always like doing battle with these mean Pharisees who were following him around. And actually there was just this intra-Jewish debate and dialogue going on between them that you see in the Talmud, you see even in Judaism today. I mean, there's a saying, two Jews, three opinions. There's all like, there was this, always this discourse between them on matters of Jewish law. And you see that between all the rabbis, not just Jesus and the Pharisees, but it was a very mm-hmm. intra-Jewish debate going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. It wasn't this hatred or this animosity between them. It was a very Jewish thing. Um, so there's this whole learning that's coming about now that I'm really encouraged with. Good. That's good because you're right. I think a lot of animosity has been brought in to scriptures so that we can see there's this fight Mm -hmm. over being Jewish and being Christian and the Christians win in a sense, you know, and even Paul comes to see the light, you know, type of thing. And, um, and I remember somebody saying to me, well, 
Look at Galatians. Paul basically put down all the Jews for being this way and said, no, they don't have to do this. They don't have to do that. And and even Peter in, in Acts 10 was told he doesn't have to eat clean foods anymore. And, <laughs> and you know, we, we, yeah. we don't look at, we want to look at it in such a narrow way that we don't look at the big picture and that Jesus had to show him that three times because he rejected it every right. time. And then he finally says, oh, this is about the Gentiles. This right. is about it's not about food. The Gentiles. <laughs> it's not about food. Yeah, I'm actually no. doing a whole course on Galatians to correct a lot of those misconceptions about Galatians. So, so going back to the Torah, which we we talked about quite a bit. So, can you clear up what the Jews see the Torah as? We kind of think of it as legalism. You know, when we as Christians see the Torah or hear the Torah mentioned, we think, um, oh, are you are you obeying the Torah so you can go to heaven? That kind of thing, you know, but but can you clear that up for us and really explain how the Jews see the Torah? So the Jews see the Torah as so it's a little bit of a, it's a difficult thing to explain. The Jews see the Torah as their covenant, but it's not the law. So oftentimes it's seen as a bunch of rules and regulations that Jews have to follow in order to be obedient to God and earn their way into heaven. It's a series of works that you have to, it's a work-based system. And the Torah is so much more than that. It's it's their entire covenant. And while Torah does contain laws, it's not the law in and of itself. So Torah obedience is obedience to God. And yes, we all, we all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. We have to remember that the apostles didn't have a new Testament. When, when they say things like that, all sin and fall short of the glory of God, they're actually referring to the Old Testament. So they, they, they didn't have New Testament scriptures. You know, when they say all scripture is given for, by inspiration of God, they're referring to the Old Testament. So, and they're referring to Torah. So the Torah, it does encompass the law, but when the law is transgressed, there was a means of atonement. Atonement was not solely by sacrifice. Many people think you sin, you take an offering to the temple, you you sacrifice a bull, and you're good. And that's not true. There are very few sacrifices that actually were for sin. Um, and most of those were for sins that you committed that were inadvertent, sins that you may not have been aware of. Most sins were atoned for through repent even even today as part of daily liturgical prayers there's what's known as vidoy and tachanun these are prayers of repentance these are asking forgiveness so grace and mercy are very much a part of Judaism it's not just um sacrifice yes there was yom kippur there was the sacrifice once a year for the sins of the people it was very sacrificial sins as far sacrifice for sins i should say as far as yom kippur was very corporate it was it was for the sins of the people but personal forgiveness was through repent through forgiveness and repentance it was not only through sacrifice 
So that's, that's the relationship of Torah was a love relationship between Israel and God, not a very strict legalistic relationship. That's good. And I'd love to go into more, but we're running out of time, but um, there was so much I have learned from your website. And I, I do want to give that website again, because it's worth beyond rubies is the main website. And then there you can find the um, Basora learning center mm-hmm. and even links to the Hebrew class. And then you can find a membership where you can get more information and more teaching. Mm-hmm. So it's very good. And um, I have learned a lot. I'm just so excited that you were here. And I think you cleared up a lot of good things, but also we tackled a lot of good, good topics that needed to be made complete. Let's put it that way to, to show the completeness of these topics, not just one sided or tinted in the wrong way so thank you so much for all that you've been sharing with us and and i look forward to maybe talking to you again on here we can tackle some of those other stuff that we (laughs) didn't get to today thank you so much for having me i appreciate it thank you thanks for listening to grafted jewish roots of christianity if you've enjoyed this podcast Please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and recommend it to your friends and family. And don't forget to check out my Bible study, Jewels of Hebrews. That's all for today. See you next time.